0: Welcome to the last breakaway session. Glad you all could make it. And uh, it's going to be just a a fun talk, I think, about kind of just personal life. And uh, there's just all sorts of, it's just a story. And that's what I've learned kind of the whole weekend here is that there's a lot of stories and a lot of different people's perspectives on things. And this is going to be my perspective and filtered throughout the room. There are people here that know this story, have been a part of that story. And I think afterwards, it's a good time, it's kind of a calm time to. Settle down. It's a very nice atmosphere to just like ask around in this room. That's what I found is the most fun part about this. Somebody was saying this whole weekend is really, there's some learning that goes on, but really it's in the nooks and crannies of this church that a lot of learning gets done and a lot of networking gets done. So feel free to ask questions. Uh, We'll hold them till the end. And uh, we'll just kind of see how this unfolds. And I just want to kind of just share something uh, that's been on my heart. I'll try to limit the heart pun intent, like all the puns that go on like today. So (laughs) there's going to be a lot of that. But uh, just want to share something that just is kind of my life, but also kind of a a problem globally. So bear with me here for the next hour or so, or the next 45 minutes, and we'll do time at the end for questions. Just uh, I know some of you, so I see faces. There's some medical residents, any medical students? Okay. Non medical people? Okay, perfect. So, just want to know who I'm talking to so as we go through I can kind of adapt. Since we're in Louisville, and recently I uh, you know, was back, uh, back for a wedding of a friend of mine, and I had the privilege to go to Churchill Downs. Now, I'm from Indianapolis originally, so you know, we're motor car racing and horses are kind of archaic, but we do appreciate Louisville's racing history. Uh, so, I got a chance to go to Churchill Downs, and can anybody name like this particular horse? Any guesses on which horse this is? I will give you a hint, it is not Rich Strike. It is Secretariat. Anybody know the other name that they use for Secretariat? Big Red, Big Red. Big Red that's right. Okay, so Big, Big Red or Secretariat was the 1973 Triple Crown winner uh, for the Preakness, the Belmont, and the Derby. Does anybody know what physical characteristic about Secretariat <laughs> made it a very important horse, a very unique horse Yeah. Yeah. So so when when he died at age 14, they did an autopsy or necropsy on him and his heart was like 22 pounds. So anybody have a guess of like what the normal size of a thoroughbred heart is? Yeah, it's eight pounds. So it's like three times the size of a normal horse. And his cardiovascular system going out from his heart was massive. So. We, th- this is I, I just ir- irony that we're talking about hearts today, but uh, unfortunately we're not talking about really like great hearts, we're more talking about like this type of heart, so for the rest of the presentation it's more like what's not really working uh, with people and how we try to repair that, so most of our kids, they're not super, well, we have some small hearts, it turns out. So just a little bit of background on me, I uh, was uh, trained at Indiana for medical school and then... Um, did my residency in internal medicine and pediatrics there as well. Shortly after that, after a little bit of private practice, went over to uh, Togo uh, with the post-residency program through Samaritans First. I spent my two years with them and then ended up switching over and had been in Togo uh, since 2018, uh, now with American Baptist for World Evangelism. So that's kind of my story about that uh, missions wasn't necessarily on the path, what what area that was going to be, and that's a totally different story, but happy to talk about that afterwards. But because of this track, this led into this world of hearts, and I think that's kind of a major theme of a lot of things here. I was going this way, and this happened, and now I'm down this path. For those of you involved in missions, I'm sure that's a, a common thread amongst your stories as well. I have uh, no interests, conflicts of disclosure. I will say I am not a cardiologist, and I am not a cardiothoracic surgeon. I am a general pediatrician and an adult hospitalist, so that is where my background is from. So just be aware as we're going through this. Please don't ask questions about specific echo findings. <laughs> the objectives for today, I kind of, as I was putting this whole concept together, because it's, it's, it's right, it's about medical care here, but it's more than that. It's about missions. It's about reaching people through Christ. And our mission statement at the Hospital of Hope includes a phrase called finding through medical missions inroads for the gospel. And this happens to be my particular inroad. And so as I was trying to figure out, like, what is important to talk about today? Over the next few minutes, we're going to kind of break it into kind of four sections. One's really easy. I'm just going to give you, like, the types of hearts that we want to fix. Then we're going to kind of go through the really boring medical stuff that includes, like, journal reviews and, like, why it's a problem. And then I'm going to just tell you a story about a heart patient and my story with that particular heart patient and then a little bit about our program and what it does in terms of relations with multiple other organizations. So that's kind of how it's going to play out over the next few minutes, looking at these kind of things. So just the first thing we're going to talk about is just what do hearts, when you're talking about a program in a a hospital, these mission hospitals that you've heard about and everything like that, that are in these rural places that are hard to get to serving the poorest of the poor, What type of heart do you fix? And there's actually, for most of these um, places we'll talk about later, there are five main heart defects that they're looking for. Holes in the heart, and basically it's a hole in the heart in a certain spot and just changes the name as you go through. So the first one's AV canal, and we've had a patient, one of my patients had this. I've actually had all of them except one. So um, AV canal is just simply that the top and the bottom chambers kind of don't form together. And then what it looks like is one single valve at the ventricle level. It's actually pretty easy to see on echo, even for a normal pediatrician. And uh, so this was our, one of my kids that had this. The next one is just, again, it's the hole moved up a little bit. So an ASD in the upper chambers. The next one, a little bit lower, the hole in the bottom chambers. And it depends on how big these holes are and the pressures that go through that um, that whether or not they are candidates for surgery, but this is just like, if they have this hole, we have to kind of evaluate that hole and say, what is the pressures across there? The next, This is the one I have not yet had. It's a very hard to find on echo, and it requires, like, you can't normally visually see it. It requires pressure evaluations above and below in different views, um, and then a high index of suspicion for you medical people, like, to think this is probably a coarctation. And then... Um, The last one is what was my first kid. We'll talk a lot about this one. This is Tetralogy of Fallot, and uh, these kids are probably, honestly, the most complicated, the most unstable, but the most fascinating, and honestly, probably one of the easiest ones to identify on ECHO, even if you're just a point-of-care ultrasound user. Uh, Tetralogy of Fallot, four problems, VSD, overriding aorta, right ventricular hypertrophy, and the pulmonary, pulmonary artery is small as it goes out of the heart, so tetralogy four problems. But this is not on the list of things that we fix. This, and the reason I put this up here, I think this this comes in right. Like this is an example of what comes to your clinic, <clears throat> and then your friends are like texting you, like, "What do we do with this?" And you're like, "Well, I don't know what's inside that belly, except that there's a heart clearly. But uh, whatever's wrong with that heart is probably bad. And so this this creates complicated surgery, right? And for lack of better more you know, nice ways to say it, heart surgery centers want good outcomes. They want their surgeries to be successful and logistically it's complicated. So this isn't necessarily the goal, although this does get fixed in certain places. I can't say it's like globally, not one of those things that you can get fixed. But in general, from our perspective, from my story, this is not a candidate automatically when they walk in my room. So that's kind of the, the heart things we talk about. And now I just kind of want to just dig into thinking about what is it across all these economical, cultural factors that we face globally when you're considering taking care of a patient? Like, what what are the pressures externally that they're presented with? So some of this is just, what's what's going on in the world to to encourage us to take care of these kids? It's hard, right? So 2015, the UN puts out these sustainable goals, like, what are we going to do? They sign all this fancy stuff. By 2030, these are the goals. We're going to reduce... The mortality of neonates, less than 12 deaths per 1,000 live births, and mortality of children to less than 25 deaths per live birth. Okay, so that's great. That's the overall infant mortality, not talking about CHD alone. And then the aim, the second one, is where it's going to start to become more practical for us in that we're going to reduce premature mortality due to non-communicable diseases by one-third by 2030. Okay, so that's the goal in mind. Keep that in mind as we talk the rest of the time through this kind of the more boring journalistic stuff. If you look at um, what's published recently from the um, uh, the Lancet in terms of just looking at overall data on global burden of disease, that includes things, tropical diseases that are infectious, which I'm sure you've been to other sessions about, but it comp- includes these non-communicable diseases. So obviously, and if you, if you ever come to the Hospital of Hope, and you are there, and we sit and talk about what are we seeing in our hospital. The top globally on the left side, um, you're looking at the causes of death one through eight as of 2017. Basically, they're the same in 2019. And then you're looking across here, our low socio-demographic uh, indexes to the high. Okay, so high is obviously like U.S., Europe, and low is like where we work. So we kind of—I'm just going to go broad. Not in the middle. Forget those. We're just not going to even think about them. But basically, congenital heart disease is the seventh leading cause of death in children less than one year old over malaria. I was a little shocked by that because basically this is what I spend my time doing pretty much every day. This is not what I spend my time doing every day. It's what I spend my time doing in the evenings. So... But we see all of this, you know, neonatal preterm birth. Literally, it's like every, you know, infant. We have a, a particular secretary that like says it. The way she said it, it makes my heart get nervous. In pneumonia, asthma, right now we're seeing all of that right now. All of these things are literally my daily rounding sheet. This isn't something that actually hits there. So it's, it's really interesting to think about that. Um, when I think about my daily life, taking care of kids overseas, I'm not going to talk about rheumatic heart disease. I don't do valves. The valves are hard. That is a big deal, but I don't want to get in there. I'm just going to say this about overall cardiovascular disease, not congenital heart disease, cardiovascular disease, including rheumatic heart disease, ischemic heart disease, and congenital defects. That overall, there are about 18 million deaths per year. That is including all of those different things. Of that... 80% 80% of those deaths are occurring in the places we work, in Mission Hospitals. If you look at those surgical interventions, again, this includes bypass surgery, valve replacement, ARHD, and congenital heart disease. Six, only 6% of those 313 million surgical interventions that are recorded each year are happening in the poorest one-third of the world. So there's not a lot going on. And we're going to see a lot of these. Stuff. This is what my goal is, like to convince you there's a problem and that it's maybe worth trying something. Again, we're back to this non-communicable diseases. That's the category that congenital heart disease falls in there. If we take, and I'll show, I'll show you a graph in just a second, you take communicable, non-communicable diseases and you say, okay, there's a list of those. Birth defects are a large category. So that's the largest part of Noncommunicable diseases, and the 50% of all of them are CHD. One th- I'm sorry, one third of those are congenital heart defects. So it makes up a massive pop- or massive part of this group of people that we're having to address to beat the 2030 goals. Okay, and I'll show you a graph because it's easier to see in graph form. In in this fact, like. We're thinking about less than 20-year-olds. It actually goes outside of our pediatric population, but this is the, how the data is uh, formed. But CHD is the in total birth defects. It's the affecting one-third of those people under 20 years old. We have a lot of things to talk about from like that age gap, but essentially it's a huge part of these noncommunicable diseases that we're going to have to address. Otherwise, the number doesn't move. In 2017, Lancet, the Global Burden of Disease, I'm using a little bit older data. There was a 2019 version, but as, as, as congenital heart disease goes, there's certain articles that really focus on that particular mortality, and understanding the mortality of CHD is important. And it turns out it's really hard to estimate that because of a lot of factors. Data, how you, how, the, 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 the epidemiological way you calculate mortality, whether it's age standardized, whether you're doing Period, cohort studies, how you do it matters because if you don't I know what the mortality is, you can't reduce it. So there's actually multiple articles arguing this is the better way to calculate mortality, so it's kind of a moving target. But in 2017, according to uh, how they looked, how they did this, it's actually moved up. You'll see on most of the websites for hearts, it's one in 100 live births for congenital heart disease. But according to that, birth prevalence, 1.8, so it's up uh, in 100 live births. Of that, a fourth of the births will have critical disease, meaning they will be, need surgery. Like They're the ones that like, the helicopters come in for here, and they get cathed and go to the cardiologist and punch the hole in the side, and then they go to the CT surgery within days. Okay, So those all die, obviously, in Togo. And then if you look farther, death rate, okay, seven, 2017 data, it's pretty much the same in 19, so I didn't include that, but it's roughly the same. About 250,000 deaths related to congenital heart disease 70% are in F- infants less than one year old, and a third of those die within a, a month. And I will just say, in the last week before I left, because I flew back from Togo to come to this, in the last week, four heart patients with some sort of congenital issue died in our hospital. And we often, my partners can say this, diagnose transposition and, and you know, the SATs drop down. And we, we see these kids that would be on helicopters every you know weekly, monthly, for sure. Prevalence, 2017 in the world. This is kids to adults who have a congenital heart disease. 12 million people are walking around with some sort of congenital heart disease, and a big problem that's that's increased by about 20%. The big problem with that is, when we're where we work, no one's doing pulse ox at the beginning of life to screen for these things, and so it's probably higher because we don't know who has them, especially where we are uh, working. This is kind of that graph I wanted to show you just briefly. If you look here, okay, that's not that's the, that's the birth defect section it, globally. This is heart disease. So, okay, all the congenital birth defects, trisomies, all these sorts of things. Then this is like neoplasms, other neurological disorders, you know, crazy stuff that we don't like to see when they come in because they're interesting. And if anybody says interesting when you come in, you're like, oh, that's going to cause a lot of hours of work. So... <laughs> Try to avoid the interesting cases for sure. Malaria is way easier. So um, this is is congenital heart disease. It's bigger than all of these other non-communicable diseases. Again, trying to make this uh, show you that there's a problem here. Crude mortality down 60%. That's baloney. I just wanted to throw it up there to say that there are numbers out there that you see, and that's baloney. Because that's just... Number of deaths down, it's a very rough number. There's no adjustments for any kind of statistical significance or st- st- statistical changes across our particular environment in terms of more um, socio demographic indexes, all of that stuff. Again, we're going to look at low and high SDI because those are the fun statistics to look at because it shows the major differences in your like shock value. Like Sweden. No one hates the Swedes, okay? They're great. They, in, from the 70s, if you were born, they did a cohort study. If you were born in 1972 versus the early 90s, the that, chance of survival is now 95% versus early. Like, and this is a good example because many high-index countries show this kind of data. We're going to see just graphs quickly over the next couple of minutes how that works. Other progress. In all SDI quintiles, sociodemographic index quintiles, except low, there's a reduction in CHD mortality. So, again, I'm trying to also build the fact that where we work in these mission hospitals, that we still have to deal with it, whether everybody else is figuring it out or not. And then the next slide um, in age less than 20 years old, the proportion of CHD in the non communicable disease, so that red section, is shrinking, except in SDIs. So, this graph is a lot, it's very, very colorful. But I want to focus on just a couple of things. I can't move with this wire. Low, high, global. Okay, look at low. This color, this color, and this color represent age zero to four. This is the category of people we have to focus on if we're meeting UN goals, right? If you look from 1990 to 2019, that basically is just a block that goes straight across. So no progress made in the age category that we have to address now by 2030. High SDIs, one, two, three colors from the bottom, you can see gradual improvement, okay? This is complicated data. There's like a thousand different things that are buried underneath these graphs, but essentially that is a, that, that's the, one of the best overviews i found to lay out the fact that look at the non-change in these areas. Again, this is the change of proportion of deaths related to that non-communicable diseases that CHD is a part of, okay? So... Are are we reducing that particular box where we need to target it? Blue, 1990. Dark blue, 2019. All categories. High, global. All down. But in, in, in low SDIs and low middle SDIs, that proportion is actually going up. So it's higher in 20. The proportion is, that box is growing in our areas of the world. Finally, this is just a very quick overview. Everything dropping except the orange line, that's low. So 1990 to 2019, infant mortality, non-communicable diseases, flat. And I like this, I like this. It's, just a, it's just a numbers thing. It just, it just shocked me when I was reading it. I'm like, okay, global population change. Like in the, in the, on the high SDI countries, okay, we're going up. Okay, it's changed since 1990 to 2019 by 45%. But the CHDs are dropping by 43% in those particular socio-demographic indexes, but in light, this, the population is exploding, and there's many factors for this, whether it's access to care centers, all of that, which we'll talk about. But CHD deaths are just continuing to go up. So population is going up, but there's not an, a, a proportionate decrease as, the, as you're addressing it. So it's trying to deal with population with already limited resources that exploding. It's only becoming a worse problem. So this is kind of, what do you have access to? Like, What does it look like? What does it look like to send a kid to, I mean, we don't have helicopters in Togo. We have a plane. It doesn't help much when it comes to, you know, getting our patients, you know, to the referral hospital, because there isn't really a referral hospital for cardiac care. So in the world, if you want to go to see a surgeon, you, uh, you have CHD, one in, you have one in 10 chance to do it. Now, not in this country, obviously, but in the world, one in 10 have access to a surgeon. And then in terms of just needs, to get appropriate to address CHD, it takes about 80 to 100 operations per 1 million people annually to address the current prevalence. Add RHD, that goes up to 340. And we're not going to talk about RHD. It's a big topic. It adds a lot to this topic. But just throwing it out there that there's a huge need for surgery related to the heart. Here's fun fact surgeons in the world, according to the ones that are registered, about 12,000 adult and about 4,000 pediatric surgeons. Those guys are unique. I have like pediatrician. I'm like, we're a dime a dozen. This is what made me feel like. I'm like, I don't even want to look at the number of pediatricians because this just to made me feel like really small. So <laughs> pediatric surgeons, real big deal apparently. 42% in North America, 32% in Europe, and 1% of surgeons exist on the continent of Africa where the biggest population of need is. Obviously, you can go in your head about why that might happen. And here's an example of that. Globally, adult surgeons per billion people, 1.6. Pediatrics, 0.5. If you look at North America, 11. That's seven times greater than the the global uh, arrangement of surgeons. Uh, And pediatrics, it's two. So that's kind of the standard rate. Two is kind of like, it seems to me that's where you can address congenital heart disease, and that would be the appropriate number. So just kind of keep that in mind. And then low-income countries, 17 17 times lower than the global rate. For adults, it's 41 times. And the adults is important because congenital heart disease turns out becomes an adult problem eventually. As a med-peds doctor, we love talking about transitions of care over time. And this is great because this is what a lot of the arguments are. Monaco. What is going on in Monaco? 182... Adult surgeons per 1 million people, 26 pediatrics. I'm like, turns out there's a lot of money in Monaco, and that's a legit number. They have a big center there. I looked it up. I'm like, I got to know what's going on because the paper didn't say what the heck's going on. So I looked up. There's a really fancy surgical center there. It's great, but uh, very pretty. Not so much. Not so much like our ORs. Take a picture in your mind of this map. This reiterates what I was just saying. Okay. Red is always bad, right? Like, no one likes the color red. But that's bad, right? So that, what that represents, that's the high mortality, infant mortality per 1,000 patients, okay? Got it in your mind where that's at? Blue is always a pleasant color. It's my color. I always wear blue. Blue blazer, blue shirts. All weekend, blue shirts. So it's always the nice one. Europe, blue. Now, this, they did shades of red in this one. So, sorry, it's not blue and red. Red is where this dark color is where the pediatric surgeons are. The light is where they are not. Mortality related to CHD, where are all the surgeons? Now we talk about centers, right? Because cardiac care is super complicated, expensive, and multidisciplinary, right? Nursing, RT, perfusionists, so much technological stuff that makes it so challenging, but way more fun. And we look at Africa, and on the continent of Africa, there are officially 22 centers for a billion people. That's 18 surgeries per 1 million people. Worldwide, there are 6,000, 2 million surgeries per year, 169 surgeries per 1 million people globally. If you look at where where we're from, sub-Saharan Africa, it's 1 per 38 million. You drop down to North America and Europe, one per 120,000 people. Access, that's a center access. So you have to figure out how to get them to where the centers are. <coughs> so here are the challenges, right? All of the, the most low-income countries, as those of you who work there, you're, you're dealing with data, and when you take the data, it's based on other country data and extrapolation, and then you model it to come up with some sort of data piece that gives you some sort of picture of what it is. That's basically where all this data comes from. That's why there's a billion studies about what is the actual mortality. In countries, even in regional disparities, I bet you can name some countries. India is a good example of that. In India, the centers of cardiac care, though they have actually a fair number of them, they are placed where the, with the, in, the, in the provinces that have the lowest incidence of cardiac disease. So it's very backwards in, their, in, in how they have distributed their health care. Private and public domains, if you look at South Africa, 17% of the population that, in terms of insurance, receive 595 operations per million. 83% have 50 in their, in their population data. So that's what they're receiving. Mortality gains, also, we looked, the people looked at SDI and they're like, well, well surely if you have more money, you're going to have better surgery. Turns out that's not true. Globally, it, it is generally a trend, but it depends also on where you put your money and how you spend your money, whether it's devoted to health care or not. So that's that's not necessarily a true statement. And then also it's expensive, technologically advanced. Right. Like these are this requires a lot of equipment, fancy hospitals, great post-op care, brain drain. People are like, well, you can't get the training in the country. You have to go elsewhere anyway. Are you going to come back? No, you're going to go to Monaco. <laughs> Clearly. The other thing is the epidemiological transition. So that's just a big term that says, basically, we keep people alive longer with these problems that are pediatric, and now it's an adult problem. Okay? And there's not enough pediatrics doctors out there, but we're working on it, to, to transition over those people. And so, I mean, there's specialties like heart failure people that deal with kids from congenital and move them into, but that, those systems are completely a mess, and there's not enough of them to make those systems exist in places that it's needed. And then we have other things like malaria and malnutrition that make patients complicated. So, just to reiterate, there's a goal, there's a problem, it's still a problem, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. That's the idea. But if we, you know, basically get rid of RHD or rheumatic heart disease, stop eating McDonald's and the ischemic heart disease goes away, basically the prevalence of congenital heart disease is always the same, we could fix it. It's solved right there. End of presentation. But then there wouldn't be cute pictures of kids, so we will continue on. And just looking at what do we have options. So this is my life, okay? So I was in a hospital called the Hospital of Hope. A friend of mine, who's sitting right there in the blue, Stephanie, brings a patient. This patient has a SAT of 67%. His actual complaint was, well, he had testicular problem because he was crouching all the time. I said, okay, well, he looks fine, except for that SAT. We'll make sure it's actually a SAT of 67 before we get too excited. Verify it is, put the echo on him, tetralogy of Fallot, easy, point of care ultrasound, done. So I'm changing over to the night doctor, who says, I'm like, I got this kid. He looks fine. I don't know what to really do with him. She's like, we'll take him to the States. I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm like one year into this thing. Sure, that sounds fine. Whatever that means. Thanks, Kelly. So, uh, so yeah, so there's some experience that, you know, you learn from other people that you're going to get that, like, well, I did it. Here's some things that helped me. This is the experience that I had. Add that into a few Google projects. You end up with a list like this, and this is certainly not exhaustive. According to The Lancet, there are 77 NGOs that are dedicated to heart repair in some way in the world. This is a list that I have Googled and had to work with in order to, to deal with some of the other patients that we've worked with, and these are some of the bigger ones that are in, like, the more charitable uh, realm. These types of organizations fit into d- different molds, and that comes into play, that plays into, like, how you decide where to send them. So, referral coordination, like, do I, do I just tell you I have a heart kit, I send you their data, and then you deal with everything? Because that is not my experience, right? But, uh, <laughs> It would be great. Like, that would be great. But do you, I'm like, do you even know how to get a kid out of COVID jail in Togo? So that's like, it, it's, that's, that's, that exists. But in my situation, just understanding how to deal with Togo isn't always clear. Short-term fly-in, fly-out. This is, what, this is one of my kids uh, received care from a team from Maine. They flew in. They operated. They left a week later. And then a, a nurse that helps flew in and flew out with my patient to help do his post-op care. So... We have those just kind of short-term, in and out. Um, those are very popular. That is probably the most common, actually, that exists on the continent of Africa. Hearts alone versus, you know, we'll fix cleft lips. And we'll bring kids over with a neurological brain tumor or other gastroesophageal some other things. So they're not just doing hearts. So you have to kind of navigate, like, can I get my spot with my heart kid? And then um, charity-based versus low, low, low-cost-based pay-for-service. So you can pay 18 grand. There's a lovely place called the Cayman Islands. You can go down there. Yeah, you go down there, you pay 18 grand, you get chart fixed. India's got a similar program. Basically, you can just pay the cash, go have it done, and then you're done. Versus, you know, we're going to help fund all of that type of thing. National versus regionalized. So you know, in the, in the United States, we have national organizations that help bring kids over, get them repaired. We also have ones that are like located. There's one, for example, that's like three hospitals in Texas. They're kind of coordinated, but they're localized to that area. And then the big ones at the end, like the idea of twinning and the centers of excellence. So uh, Chain of Hope is a super big uh, name when it comes to the idea of the centers of excellence. It's a designation. So those of you who work in terms of quality in low-income countries, like they, they put it, you can, they twin And then they stamp on that center, a center of excellence, because they have certain outcomes and certain equipment and sustainability. So that's kind of the the gamut of the organizations that you find. And I just want to emphasize this, because this is my story a little bit, although I'm not near the fancy red dot. Actually, red is good in this case. Um, 1960. This is Heartlink off their website. 50 years of heart care. In 1969, I'll read it, during the Vietnam War, a U.S. medic sends three sick kids from Vietnam to Minneapolis for heart surgery. Since then, in 23 years, 643 patients are transported to Minnesota for heart surgery. And then in 2019, I got to remember the number. Yeah. In that year alone, before COVID, 162,000 patients in 17 centers received care through the organization. But it started... With three kids in Togo, it starts with five kids we 're not to hundred thousand yet we 'll get there. Notice a contrast here. This is where heartlink 's main thrust is. Remember the red, remember the red picture? I was I heard in a presentation right like fifty percent of care given in these low income countries are given by mission hospitals so And this is what you face. This is where there's some ethics stuff you start to get into, right? Like, it's cookie cutter. It's, you know, cut, draw lines in the sand. Like, what do we do? We do this with cancer. The doc that ran their cancer program before, it's like, if they're not a pediatric patient, they are not a candidate for surgery, minus a couple of special people. But in this situation, so this is off the website of one of the organizations, okay? 14 years is their cutoff. It just is for that organization. It's a variable thing. But a lot of times, this is huge, no chromosomal abnormalities. That's not always true for trisomy 21. I have learned, but it can be, it can be a no-go even for not perfect children. And then obviously no previous surgeries. We don't want them to have craziness problems and all that. And it's just logistically also at a local level, um, we have to vet these families. I have to know they're going to come back. I have to know that they're going to do what I ask. And we financially support them through our heart, heart program, and partner with them with some stake in it as well from their side. But this is, when people ask me, how do you determine who's a candidate? I'm like, well, I echo them. I'm like, it's got one of the five. And then I ask the chaplains who are totally, I'm like, do you think this family's a good candidate? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, not a candidate. The next one, yes. I'm like, okay, have them come back next week. We'll send this to uh, the, uh, the cardiologists in the United States, and we'll start the process. That's how, that's my vetting process. It's not super rocket science. Okay. So this is where it's fun. Okay, that's all the data, right? It's a problem. I think it's convincing that there's, it's an ongoing problem. And these show up to mission hospitals. And you have to decide, is it a, it's too hard, I'm sending them away, they have a, a terminal thing I can't deal with. Or can you as an American citizen or a citizen of a country with a passport that is flexible, create a system, solve a problem, and get that child to get repaired? So these are our stories. Um, this is actually, this is one I interacted with, but not my initial work. This is Salima. She came to Riley Hospital when I was a resident. I came in 2016 to Togo, went back, she showed up. I'm like, hey, is there a patient here from Togo? Yeah, there is. And so I saw her as a resident and then went back to Togo and then my, my work started. So Ganyu, Fatih, Musin, Sudez, and Ahad are the kids that have been or are currently in process of having their hearts fixed. All but a have been fixed. So I'm going to focus on Ganyu. So he's my he was my first and definitely the most challenging logistically across the whole gamut. It's going to show you what it's like from a practical aspect to be a pediatrician in West Africa and get a kid from a hut to Louisville. Ironically, he literally was operated in Louisville. So this is a very hit home. He did not go see Secretary. That I uh, not he did not go to Churchill Downs. And I'm not sure if he won any cash like off the derby or anything like that while I was here. So he has no disclosures. <laughs> uh, so he was, I diagnosed him. I pulled our chart. He was diagnosed April 4th when Stephanie gifted me this project uh, with Tetralogy of Fallot in the emergency department of the Hospital of Hope. And then I actually sent them back to Burkina Faso, which is a country north of us. Their trip is about three and a half hours by taxi to the border. They live just across it in a small fishing town. And said, you need to get a passport. Now, in in other cases, we've helped with that process because it's very cumbersome in our French system. Um, But in that case, I was just, I was new. I was like, I don't know, just go find a passport. And they came back two weeks later with a passport. I'm like, I don't even know if this is legit. (laughs) It did make it through customs, so that's good. Um, (laughs) Sometimes you like, you know, you just kind of turn the other way. Not until June did we really get confirmation that we sent forms, we hadn't come back for a rendezvous, and there was a lot of ignorance. I am so ignorant when it comes to a lot of these kids, and how stable he was, all these different things, and whether they're going to come back. But again, our chaplains helped coordinate this. They're calling him on Burkina numbers via WhatsApp, and I, like, all of a sudden they show up in front of me in clinic. and So we did forms and get a health history. And like, You're asking them, you know, on the forms, it's like, well, who lives in the house? And they start down the list of 25 people, and you're like, maybe pick four. And you write, you write those down. So you're uh, trying to fit the world of West Africa onto American forms, and you're just like, there are so many little nuances here. And sometimes you just scribble real small, and then, like, it just gets lost in the scribbles. Um, July is just a routine visit for uh, just seeing, like, how is he doing? We're waiting on information, waiting on the cardiologists in Louisville to review the forms and look at his echo images, all of that. And just as a note, his echo images, how that works is I take our little M Turbo, I put the heart probe on him, I do the echo, I download it onto my USB, take it to my house, pull up our internet, download six emails. It takes five videos per email I can send, download those, and then I send them to a cardiologist to confirm the images. That's the evening process over coffee. Then I was told his pulmonary artery is too small. We can't find it on your echo images. I'm like, great. It's it's another testament to my lack of echo skills. So I say, okay, fine. Bring him back. This is at our MK school. So our internet at the time wasn't as nice as it is now. So we had like internet, Wi-Fi in certain buildings. And the school had the best upload speed. It was great. So I'm on the phone with um, Smitha Bullock here in Louisville holding the phone in front of the echo machine, trying to find the pulmonary artery. She's like a little to the left. I'm like, your left or my left? Because you're backwards. Like, it was, I'm like, it was, I I am not an artist. And to turn, and visual spatial skills are not my, I'm totally internist when it comes to that. So he's, yeah, he's in the school. You can see here, and this is a constant thing I want to start in the rest of this presentation is, on the left is one of our chaplains, Hamidu. Dad, mom's hiding behind me, but, uh, we're on like, one of the bean tables or whatever, and thankfully he fell asleep, and he was a great echo participant. That was great, because that is not always the thing. I am very thankful for Valium, because it helps echo images when you're not an excellent echo tech. So he slept fine through it. We were not able to find a good view of the pulmonary artery, and thankfully it was really hard when we got here. It's always validating when you're like, oh, the echo tech had a difficult time finding it, because he's got pulmonary stenosis from tetralogy, so it's hard to find. So they say, can we just get a CT scan of him? I'm like, yeah, I'll just send him straight to the CT scanner. I'll write on that. So it turns out in hot, we did not have one. In, we have a town two hours south now. We have a CT scanner. Uh, we did not at the time. So it was either Lome, eight hours, nine hours south, or Ouagadougou to the north. So I'm like, I, and they, want, they send me a protocol from a pediatric radiologist with cardiac-gated f- protocol on how to get, I'm like, yeah, no, he's going to get irradiated. I, we're going to figure out another. I'm like, I need to know what's like the, you know, like as your resident, you're like, what's the order that I put in to get like the simple scan? So PE protocol is what we landed on, which was great. So I sent him via a connection who got Hamidou knew a doctor who knew a radiologist that had a center in Ouagadougou that had a CT scanner. And I'm like, how much money do you need? And we sent Hamidou with them. I said, off you go. I left for uh Spain. Uh, for an SP breakaway, and then vacation with my family. I'm in Granada. I get a, a WhatsApp call from Hamidou that says they're not going to scan him. I'm like, what is happening? <sighs> so I call. I'm in Granada. Excuse me one second. And in my beautiful French accent, I'm like on the phone like, why aren't you scanning him? I'm sure anybody who spoke French around there was like, this guy. So I'm talking to this radiologist. Well, he's sick. I'm like, well, duh, he's sick. Why do you think we sent him to the scanner? And so he's like, "Well, he's my die on the table. He's going to die anyway. So what's this? it's all good." He's like, "Well, I could go to prison." I'm like, "I'll go to prison for you." <laughs> so then we had this negotiation and back and forth and back and forth. Finally, about 30 minutes after discussing how this would work out legally and all this stuff, uh, Hamidu gets back on the phone. He's like, "I think they're going to. He's going to scan it." So he gets scanned. Later, the guy who ran the chaplaincy is like, hey, by the way, like, after that, like, it turns out like he was moving around a lot. So Hamidi was like, yeah, that's weird. He moved around and then he just grabbed a rag and like, put it on his face for a while. And then he stopped moving. And I was like, this is spy crap. Like, he just got chloroform. <laughs> I'm like, this poor kid. So Ganyu went through quite a bit. Anyway. And then November, December, it was legal stuff. And this was really hard for me. Like it, I mean, I was like on on Tums, and like I had an ulcer. He comes back, and all these forms, we had to send him to Wagga. He went to his hometown. Governor, mayor refused to sign the human trafficking paperwork because I took him by myself. And then take him on. Like then, the, then the regional governor refuses. Then they ended up in Wagga All this stuff. Comes back. Three of the forms are signed, not the other three. I'm like, I can't buy tickets until this is signed. Send him back to Wagga Two weeks later, it comes back. Paperwork's done. We buy tickets. So, um, I have gone with all of them except one to get them set up. And we're, again, we're building like relationships. So part of this is figuring out what is the system. And uh, his little safety sack, we did a lot of training, lots of time with MK kids, white people, to understand what it's like to see them and, and not be freaked out and how to play with, because I knew they were going to be with the host family because the kid did not have a parent go with him. So, we get in the van, no tears, got in the van, it was great. We spent a lot of time with a lot of balls and things, and there was a lot of buying out love, like this happens, you buy the love. So I, had, I bought him a small meat stick, I had my big meat stick. It turns out he wanted the bigger one, so he got it. And this, my favorite part is that when we do go to Lome, we stay at a, a, a hotel there, it's on the beach, and they, he's never seen sand, like a beach sand, obviously, but water and ocean, and, so, and he's super awesome and cute turns out it's, rolling bags are great for, like, two- to four-year-olds. Uh, they can hold on, and that helped me save a hand. And so we, we ended up taking the plane. He hated the airplane food. He would not rate Ethiopians food very high, I can tell you that. And as a theme you'll see here, he is a big eater. So he loved pizza. And he liked – actually, he ate, he ate pretty well. But you learn about these kids. Like, you learn so many things. Like, does he like Fanta? I'm like, the kid doesn't like Fanta. What, what African kid doesn't like Fanta? He hates it. I'm like, ugh. Make it challenging. I had to separate out the peas from his rice. He wouldn't touch it with the peas. I'm like, and of course he doesn't speak French or English. So I'm like using my limited moray. Like, come here, sit down, be quiet. Do you have to pee, poop? And like just basic phrases. And then this was the most interesting. We got to Louisville. He had a, um, a host family with uh, three kids. And they had already set up their playroom with all, I told them he loves cars. That's how I bought his love. Most visits, I would come with one of a, a car from our stash he would get a car, then we would settle down and, and try to bond. Um, ironically, he came in, I think the excitement kind of overwhelmed him. He went into a TET spell uh, while we were there, turned blue. I'm like, no, no, this is normal. It's fine. We just did this. I said, don't worry, we just did this. We were at the TSA line, and he went into this, and he was like, ah, like starting to go down. And the like, TSA ladies looking at me, and I'm like, I look like single dad, right? So... And she's like, oh, they just get so cranky. I'm like, I'm like taking his legs, pushing him. Up. Oh, he's really cranky. Long, long flight, like trying to get him over to a quarter. So he like stops looking like he's dead. I'm like, I cannot get admitted to a New York hospital. This would be very bad. So yeah, so he went to Tetsville, and I'm like, no, no, it'll be fine. He broke it after a while. I'm like, we've just, we've done a lot with this recently. I was super, again, there's a lot of ignorance when you do these kind of things. So it'll be fine. And then time in the U.S., I, I left shortly after I dropped him off. I, I did, you know, get him registered. He, he shushed me, because like, I would be like, shh, and he'd be like, shh, like all the time. So this is Debbie, the, the gal that helped us out. She uh, took that picture. He has to do labs, and we're trying, you know, he actually did pretty well. Again, echo, and then I, I left. A couple days after I left, he tetted at the host family's house. They weren't so thrilled with the TET spill, as I was used to, and so they took him to the ER, he got admitted that night. It was Thursday. He got admitted fr- or Thursday night. Friday, he, this is him Friday. Trucks, a, seat, a theme here. Um, and then he went to a tet spell. He got intubated and went to the OR Saturday morning. So within a week of getting there, went to the OR. We thought it might be a month. And uh, he came out really well and did fine. And... Uh, So he, uh, he got a lot of drums and he uh, recovered well. This is his post-op thing. And then basically Smitha cleared him to travel and be done uh, with heart care. So we brought him back. I love how plastic pediatric language learning is. Like it's crazy what he could say. Actually, sometimes he just used the English word for no all the time. But he learned no really fast. That's not actually the word in moray for no. So or no is not no. It's IO. So he switched completely over to no by the time he got back. And he got to do all the fun stuff like, you know, see the actual cockpit. I was a little bit jealous of that. And then another thing that, to emphasize is that this is a team effort. This requires, you know, your, your, your mentor to show you how to do a U.S. visa application. It requires... Someone who's traveling from a vacation in Iceland to meet the person in Louisville who's bringing the kid to Newark, get him on the plane, and bring him back over to Togo. Uh, It requires someone to buy and help organize the families of the team to do a safety sack with toys that a 37-year-old guy doesn't really have around his single house. So, you know, trying to get ready for a four-year, traveling with a four-year-old, that's not, you know, something you do on a regular basis. Um, But it becomes part of everyone's story, and that's what I like about these. It's not my story. I do a lot of logistics and headache work, but at the end of the day, this is why we do this, because at the end, we get to bring it back. then, just like in every home, you just get to tell stories. You get to say, like, your son is the pickiest eater on earth. They're like, oh yeah, we know. Oh, he won't eat anything. I'm like, why did you say that? <laughs> why did you tell me that? Uh, and you, you get to sit around, and you just get to talk about, like, what happened, and what were the things he saw, like, when we, we you know, for him and I, we flew to, drove to Lome, flew to Houston, stayed the night. He got to see, like, Houston skyline as we drove by it. He's like, what are like, massive things. And so, you know, what is it that he remembers as a four year old? And, and, you know, he obviously remembered the cars right before he had the tet spell at the, 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 the host family's house, but he remembered that. And then we get to do follow up. So I usually see them about a year after their surgery, just as a more of a social visit. I echo their heart out of curiosity to just see, yeah, and his, it's amazing. Tetralogy is so out of line, but then you echo it, and you're like, you can't even tell the difference in their heart from a normal heart. It's fascinating. Um, again, more shushing. And then this is the greatest part. This actually, this is how uh, our chaplain. We, we had dinner at my house. And um, this is where we talk more about like, well, what does he remember? What do you remember? Like, and this family, actually, this father uh, came to know Christ. That is not the case for all of my families. But this, in this particular instance, he did. Um, and this, you know, was a good time of just sharing fun time stories And also the fact that he received Play-Doh in the United States, and it turns out they had no idea what to do with that. So there is a video that I have of Miriam trying to explain that, no, it's not for eating, and yes, he he knew what to do with it. The mom kept telling him, no, stop messing with it, because she didn't know what it was. But he's like, I know what to do with Play-Doh, because I've been doing this overseas. So it was this whole conversation and lots of laughter, and it's just time with community, which is the fun relational part of this program. And kind of like I emphasize, this is the bedrock of what ministry looks like with these patients. They vet, the chaplains vet our patients. They are the ones that build the strongest relationships because this family in particular knew no French. So I can't do English, French, and only just greetings and more. So at the end of the day, I can't reach beyond that cultural barrier, but my, the chaplains can do that. And so that's really what makes this effective from a ministry standpoint. So looking at it from a ministry Perspective, it's super relational. It's not just relationships with the family, though that is the biggest part of it, but it's relationships beyond that. It extends into Louisville and extends to donors who are giving. And I had a donor visit who paid for one of my heart patients solely and came and just saw where they lived, like a full circle experience, which was awesome. Um, and for us as a minister, it gives us a tangible reason to be in their home, to visit them and be like, I have something to offer you to help you and uh, Move, help your child. Which I think there's sometimes stereotypes, but these people love their children. Fathers love their children, and the dad came every visit to see what was going on with his care. Uh, our, the, it's a reputation building. I re, I returned in October to Togo and uh, had a clinic on the first October Friday in October. I had two referrals from a cardiologist in Wagadougou, for cardiac evaluation. So clearly, the word gets out and travels fast. And then, I mean, logically, it's a great anecdote for a transition to a gospel presentation. Changed hearts. I mean, you go with what's easy sometimes. Uh, So, and then, like, we are seeing patients from Burkina Faso. We can't go, like, it's dangerous to go there. It's limited. It's really hard to get in there. They're coming to the hospital. Half of these patients are from that country that we can't go to. They're coming down and hearing about Christ and so that's an advantage to some of these things that we do as well. And like I say, global stories and then this is my favorite, you know, I have friends with the teachers uh, that teach the MKs and the MKs come over and played with Ganyu and then they pray. Like they ask, the kids come up at church and ask me, how is Ahad doing, our current patient? Like what, they know the stories and it's very relational to them because they're young and they're kids and I think that's a really cool part of it and again, pull-ups and Books and iPads and everyone donated stuff for this kid so that I could take them and and survive. Not pictured in any of these is, you know, him, me forgetting the pull-up on the way down, getting peed on and having my entire pants soaked and also (laughs) trying to manage a four-year-old that doesn't speak English or French in an airplane bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Don't touch! You turn around, it's amazing how fast kids move. Like, no, he touched (laughs) the... So much hand-washing, so much hand-washing. Uh, challenges. I mean, just this is stuff that you could probably gather. Yeah, like language is hard. Kids are easy. If you can get come here, go there, sit down, be quiet, and do you need to pee, poop, and eat, or drink water, you're pretty good. I learned. And then you add in a phrase of "I love you," that makes ten-year-old boys' hearts melt when their ICU nurses are taking them back all the time. Like that just helps build that relationship. This is um, kind of you know transport, logistics, planes, COVID. I mean, I literally in the two years that I was doing the last several kids, I have been tested for COVID 43 times total from requiring to travel across borders, being in different places to hospitals going in. So I have my nose is so very sore. So um, and then family expectations like your child may die. This is not always good. And we're experiencing that right now with our last patient stability, unexpected results are there. We want to help these kids. We want to try to give them their best shot. It's our, I, I, my personal duty to do that. Um, but sometimes things happen and we can't predict those things. So from the very beginning, we're like, you can go to, to the United States and you may not get operated on and come right back. Or you may not come back. Your loved one may die. As a Muslim, I can't guarantee that your child may be buried in the 24-hour period. I can't guarantee a lot of things. You're going to be traveling with a male doctor as a mom. You're going to have to forfeit many cultural understandings. I'm going to try my best having lived here, but we're going to do, there's going to be so many things that are going to be new and different. And so that's huge to manage, um, but that's where the relationships are built. And it's when you do projects with people and you go through hardships that that relationship become more solidified. We'd love to say all the stories are great, and they're really cute, all of them. But... We're dealing with it right now, and I don't have all the time to go into his story, but at the end of the day, he's in Jacksonville, Florida. He has a really complicated heart. We thought it might be repairable. It is. Unfortunately, his trachea is really small, and so actually at this point, we're talking, like, how do we make him DNR, and probably he'll die in the United States? How do we communicate that with family? How do we get him back, if we can get him back? So, and that's hard, because in the pediatrics world, training and like saving lives, like in our hospital, our, our death rate per month is 29.7 kids die in a month, on average, at the Hospital of Hope. In the U.S., I had, like, one when I was on ICU rotation, because, you know, you rotate through, it's just a chance whether it happens. And so that experience is very different. So our, how we even talk about DNR, is like, this is new. I didn't know how to deal with root canals. I had mom fall, she needed a root canal, we had to deal with that on the last patient. All these unexpected escalators, one mom almost fell down, second mom almost fell down. We stay away from escalators now. But when it comes to these complicated things, like how do you tell a mom who's used to the doctor saying, we're taking the machine off, they're going to die, we can't do anything else, which is what we do a lot in our hospital, to an entire team of ethics, pediatric care people that come in and try to explain to the mom, you have a choice and you have all these things. When in reality, in a paternalism medicine society, that's not how it works for them. And so how do you communicate that? And we're learning all sorts of things. What a privilege. It has been a privilege. So hard questions. And I don't know the answers to, and I'm happy if you guys have answers to these questions because I don't. There's, you read all about it. I'm sure you can go through the logic in your head. Like, is it the best use of resources? I'm a physician that does a lot of hours at our hospital, but when I leave to take a patient, I take an enormous labor force out of our hospital. Is it too expensive? It costs about $18,000, $5,000 on my end to get a kid ready to go, and then the, we have multiple funding agencies that help with that. Is that worth it? One kid. Is it a drop in an ocean? okay, one organization is doing 167,000. I can tell you, I tried to go with that organization because I was like, this would be logistically great. They're like, there's a 250-kid wait list. I'm like, well, this kid's dead, so I'll figure out another way. So I complained a little bit, sent an email, voila. If you complain enough, sometimes you get your answer. So that's what happened with one of them. I literally complained to a colleague of mine. She's like, I have a friend. They do hard things in Jacksonville. Why don't you email her? I did. Two patients have gone there now. So there you go. And then what if they come back? They're two to four. They're still malaria danger zone. I mean, I put them on prophylaxis. I see them regularly, but, I mean, they could die of malaria. I literally dropped Ganyu off. That's a massive $300,000 investment that night. I'm like, where are they staying? Outside the gate. I'm like, which building? They're like, no, no, they're on the the ground, like at the gate, waiting on the taxi for tomorrow. I'm like, give him his fans that are right now. We don't want him to get the malaria. Um, And then who's responsible? Is it me, the governments, other NGOs? Like, when they show up in front of me, like, What what do you do? And again, I don't have easy answers there. So my conclusions of all this are, and this whole weekend, is there's a lot of brokenness around the world. Sometimes the easiest thing to do when you're like, I don't even know which organization in that giant exhibit hall to go with or which project to insert myself is to just be like, well, someone dumped a kid with a sat of 67 in front of me. This is my next project. And right in front of you is where you go next. And I think that's good for younger people as you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. And those of us who are always trying to figure out what we're going to do, is to just be like, there's a lot, but just look right in front, and maybe the answer's right there. Be humble and ask for help. Like I said, not a cardiologist. Not there's, I've been humbled multiple times, knowing our limitations, and then also like looking for God in the failed pathway. He's there, and He's glorified regardless of good or bad outcomes. And then um, you just do some stuff long enough, people let you talk at some conference. So you know, just go out there and try something, and then submit it and wonder if they'll let you talk. And then I just think, look at looking at God's sovereign, like, Him showcasing it, 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 if you look for that, then this becomes a lot more tolerable. You still have to take a Meprazole, but, but He's doing it Himself, and we just get a chance to be a participant in that. So, we talked about the defects, we've talked about some of the social involvement uh, that, went, that go into these types of things, the pressures globally around it, and then you've heard a personal story of a doctor who was here as a student, went for the post-residency, got suckered by their mentor, and ended up doing five more kids. So um, just I hope you've understood that kind of, again, another story that's been at this weekend. And um, if you ever have a chance and want to, you can come out and join us at the Hospital of Hope and uh, learn some more other topics, maybe not heart-related. So I'm happy to field any questions at this point, whether it's related to the heart stuff or even post-residency or pediatric care in the uh, developing world. Thoughts, questions? If I have answers to some of my questions? Yeah, funding's, a, funding's a, an interesting one. Turns out pictures of kids are uh, really effective uh, raising, fundraising. So, Gandhu, I'll just be frank, he raised my entire missionary support in like three months. One picture, sent it out, I was fully funded. At the end of the day, funding for hearts, here's how it works with our current situation. I have to fund their visas. In-country travel, it's about five grand. The organization in L- There's an organization in Jacksonville, a foundation started by a mom who lost their child to heart care. They, they want to help African kids. We partnered with them. They cover flights, uh, making sure they have to go to the African store. They cover like, culturally sensitive foods. They visit them. They co- like, recently, we got a phone for the patient that's in Jacksonville. She covered that. So while they're there, she kind of covers like, the day-to-day expenses. A new suitcase because literally got off the plane. The handle broke. And I'm like carrying the bag myself. Um, and then the patrons of the heart is a cardiologist who has, out of his retirement, accumulation of wealth over time has started this fund. They, give, they cover the Ronald McDonald House and some like generally ancillary services related to the hospital. And then the foundation at the hospital. Most fo- ha- hospitals have foundations. Uh, Baptist Health in, at Wolfson's funds, the surgery Surgeon fees, anesthesia, and care around the surgery. That's donated by them. So we have four kind of funding sources is how we fund them. I will just say this. You don't have to be a doctor to do any of this. Literally, some of these sites have the referral form on them. You put in the information. You, you could, it's, yeah, you can just refer, yeah, you can refer them anybody. Moms. I was talking to one of the people who runs uh, Healing to Children. She's got a, a mom who, from Jamaica that just, Referred their child. And that's who she's working with. It's, yeah. Great. Well, thanks for coming. Have a great day. Enjoy the last plenary.